0: Hank and John. Of course, I prefer to think of it, dear John and Hank.
1: It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, yeah. What do you say about a man who's been in national politics for over fifty years, who's run for president three times, who was once the youngest senator and is now the oldest president elect?
0: What, what do you say?
1: I guess he was Biden his time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's pretty good, but I'll admit that my enjoyment of the joke is affected by my like overall enjoyment level of, of the world, which has gone <laughs> up significantly in the last five days or so. Oh, don't worry, John. The stress will come back. It has been a weird week, and I think we should just not talk about it. I want to take an unusual approach this week and begin by asking you a question that I find very important and very troubling. Okay. It's from Kylie, who writes, hi, John and Hank. First off, Kylie, thank you for putting my name first. It means a lot to me. <laughs> it's not why I'm asking your question, but it certainly probably is working on me in a subconscious level. Kylie writes, why does the Twix brand have this obsession with right Twix versus left Twix? I don't think anyone cares. Confusedly, Kylie.
1: No one
0: cares
1: about any of the stuff in adverti- the the no. entire point of an advertisement is to make you care about something you otherwise would not. That's why they exist.
0: So I think it's more to make you notice so you're saying that you didn't notice that there were
1: two Twixes and a Twix? Well, no, what,
0: it is literally called a, a Twix, <laughs> I, which I assume is, a, it is a little, it's like a twin, yeah. but with an X.
1: Well, I never thought about that.
0: But anyway, I, I don't actually think the point of those advertisements is to make me like the advertisement. The no. point of those advertisements is to remind me that Twix exists yes. uh-huh. and to make it impossible for me to forget That Twix exists so that the next time I am in a convenience store, which I mean, could be 2023, I (laughs) will look down and think to myself, do do I want to watch Macaulay? No, because I haven't seen a watch Macaulay ad in like 35 years. Do I want a Twix? I guess. And then I'll get a Twix, even though, even though, Hank. And this has become important to me in the last two weeks because Mm -hmm. we've exited the post-Halloween period when the kids eat a lot of Halloween candy, and we've entered the post-Halloween period where John eats a lot of candy. (laughs) And so I've been thinking about this a lot Mm -hmm. because I've been eating a lot of candy. And the thing about Twix is that somehow it still exists even though it is terrible. So there must be something to this advertising campaign because the ah. product has survived. I
1: like Twix just fine. No, but you I don't. do I do find Twix. Uh last Halloween probably. We didn't get a lot of uh, Halloween we weren't able to do the Halloween
0: thing. Basically. Yeah, us neither. So, but we still we still handed out candy to ourselves. <laughs> <Let> me... <laughs> that's, we kind of did that. We got a bowl just in
1: case and put it on the porch and yeah. nobody came by. So I got some York peppermint patties for myself, which is my favorite candy.
0: Oh, God, that's such a bad pick. I mean, you could have picked anything. Well,
1: I don't know if it's my favorite candy, but I like them a lot. And I yeah. like junior mints. I like minty chocolate. Sure, that's fine. It's one of
0: my favorite flavors. Andes, you know, those Andes chocolate mints? Those oh, are yeah. Good. Excellent.
1: You say that there are better picks and maybe there are, but I've, I find it really interesting. And I know that there are people who know the answer to this question, but like there are so many candy bars yeah. that have just stuck around. Whatchamacallit. And they're not going anywhere. Yeah. And even like Snickers, like the sort of like chief king of candy bars, right? is not going in. But like nobody's coming in and like innovating and like trying
0: a new kind of candy bar anymore. Well, they are. They're called uh, power bars or cliff bars. (laughs) Right, right. They're like, no, it's candy bar, but it's good for you. Right. You want a candy bar that's going to give you energy and protein. And Snickers is over there being like, "Uh, excuse me? What (laughs) what do you think I I am? I have nuts. I'm a sugar and nut. (laughs) Distribution service. Yeah. It's not it satisfies, which is,
1: I guess, what they're trying to get, get with that. But wouldn't you want to pay more for one that has
0: the same amount of calories? But there hasn't been innovation in like the candy part of candy that much. I agree. Right. I think it's interesting that companies like Twix have to advert or brands like Twix have to advertise constantly. Snickers does the same thing. Whereas yeah. a brand like whatchamacallit, call it. Which is a beloved like for I am a fan of Whatchamacallits and for a brand like Whatchamacallit, they never have to advertise because everybody who loves their product is already addicted to it and they they know that they live in a niche. Yeah. The thing that I find interesting, Hank, is I believe that if Whatchamacallit started advertising with the same like level of constancy that twix advertises it would become the dominant candy brand oh. and twix would go where it deserves to be which is to the graveyard of retired candy brands because taste got more sophisticated
1: i i don't I, I think that they could they could maybe supersede twix but they wouldn't become the dominant candy bar snickers deserve that that space and will maintain that space
0: snickers should be the number one candy bar in america and then it should be what you call it and then it should be three musketeers midnight dark as as
1: ooh good 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 save john as long as we're not counting peanut m&ms as a candy bar
0: no peanut m&ms Which obviously they aren't peanut yeah. m&ms are the greatest candy There, peanut m&ms are probably the greatest innovation this is bold maybe the best food yeah well i think they're the most important innovation in the history of food Like, I think they're more important than refrigeration (laughs) or salting meat (laughs) or any of that stuff. (laughs) Like, God, they're good. I haven't had a peanut M&M in a while. They're shelf-stable. I gotta go get them. You don't need a freezer. Although, if you have one, Uh peanut M&Ms can get even better. They are good. Yeah, yeah. They're the perfect mix of salty and sweet. They're the perfect Mm. mix of protein, fat, and sugar. They've got lots Mm -hmm. of all three. And- they taste amazing. They also got a, gr- they
1: have a great texture mix. They've got the crisp of the candy yes, shell. They've yes. got the the sink, like the, the nice delicate sink of the milk chocolate. And then the, you know, like actual
0: legume of the peanut, right. which has a great, a great crunch to it. Right. It's like the 19th century landscape architects being like, you need all three kinds of... Uh-huh. Views. You need the pastoral view, the agricultural view, and the forest view. And and a peanut M M&M and M contains yes. universes within it of texture, of taste, uh-huh. of nutrition. Uh
1: huh. Oh. Uh-huh. I used to get because I've been vocal about my support of Peanut M&Ms. I used to get Peanut M&Ms whenever I do shows. People would like bring me Peanut M&Ms. And so that's why I haven't had any lately.
0: Yeah, I remember. We would eat them on the in <laughs> the van like, on the I'm way home. St- I'm stuck, not doing fun things. <laughs> so many times after we would do shows in like from like 2008 to 2012, because we didn't always schedule our time perfectly, the signing part would end at like 1.15 in the morning and we would get back in the car and it would be like, everything is closed. Like the Wendy's drive-in just turned off their lights and we'd be like, well, at least we have four pounds of peanut (laughs) M&Ms. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Cause it's food. It's food. I wonder if they have vitamin C. Because if they have enough vitamin C to stave off scurvy, Man. like I think I might try to go a year only eating peanut M Ms.
1: That's my new business idea: is vitamin C peanut M Ms. I just buy peanut M Ms. I spray, I spritz them with vitamin C, yes. and
0: then I resell them at a fifty percent markup. And you could call them, you could call them the only food you'll ever need. It's like you know those <laughs> those people in Silicon Valley. Who drinks Soylent? The yeah. like tech company that. Yeah, you don't need that. You just need nutrition shakes. Yeah, you need my new product, M and C's. I'm I'm gonna look up how much vitamin C is in a, in a peanut M M&M. and bet there's some. I bet there's none. Oh yeah, there's plenty. There's point one milligrams. That's all you need. <laughs> is there? Yeah.
1: Oh, I guess it's in the chocolate. It's probably in the chocolate.
0: How much do you need
1: per day? Oh, you need a lot. <laughs> so, so, what you're saying, John, is you'd only need like 900 servings of peanut MMs to get your daily dose of vitamin C.
0: You can get enough vitamin C, according to the government, if you eat 650 <laughs> <laughs> servings of peanut MMs now every day. <laughs> just to be clear, now I know I know what you're wondering how many peanut MMs in a serving. <laughs> 25. So all you need to do <laughs> in order to get enough vitamin C to go about your daily life is to eat 16,250 peanut M&Ms per day. Which is only, only 14,000 calories. Yeah. Listen, if you're going to take on the peanut M&M only diet, you're going to have to have an active lifestyle. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody's going to disagree with you on that. I think I was wrong. I think it's 146,000 calories. Well, in that case, a very, a very active lifestyle probably, but th- that's, that's beside the point, Hank. The real question is if I'm going to eat enough peanut M&Ms to get me my daily dose of vitamin C, how often am I going to have to eat a peanut M&M? <laughs> Could you do it fast enough? And the, the, answer is, the answer is that you have to eat 677 peanut M&Ms per hour- which oh that's doable. Which I believe boils down to like just over ten yeah. peanut M Ms per minute. Which uh-huh. I- if I anything definitely is slow. <laughs> 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 like like I can eat way more than ten peanut M Ms. You just have to do, it, but you have to do it while you're sleeping. You do have to do it while you're sleeping. I think that's when you hook up the IV, probably. Now you're just Soylent John.
1: <laughs> you gotta blend them up and drink them. <laughs>
0: You've come all the way back around. I mean, at its at its base, Soylent is just peanut M Ms put in a blender and sprinkled (laughs) with some vitamins. I mean, that's yeah. There's a multi million dollar company that has that as its model, and (laughs) God bless them. Well, don't, because they're. Hey, by the way, we are an independent podcast now. Um, (laughs) We had a wonderful relationship with WNYC over the last two years. They helped so much uh, with helping Dear Hank and John, but also helping to launch uh, SciShow Tangents, helping the Anthropocene Reviewed. It's been a wonderful, amazing relationship. Uh, We loved working with them. We hope they liked working with us. Uh, But we have decided to become an independent podcast again, hence... Hank's feeling <laughs> absolutely empowered to criticize privately held corporations.
1: <laughs> oh, God. Well, John, yeah. I've got another question yeah. before we get too deep. This one is from uh, Sawomi, who asks, dear Hank and John, what would happen if I found dinosaur bones in my backyard? I live in a residential neighborhood in Toronto, and I was wondering what would happen if I just found a bone and it was a dinosaur bone. Uh, would they just like... Dig up my whole neighborhood? Would all my neighbors hate me? Digging for dinosaurs, swow me. So this depends on where you are a little bit. They're not going to dig up your neighbor's houses, but there are, in Canada specifically, and this is province by province, but in the places in Canada where dinosaur bones are often found, the government just owns all of the dinosaur bones in the country, like preemptively. So when you find one, it is already theirs. And they can kind of decide what to do once they know about it. This is mostly a problem or a, a, mostly comes up in mining and in like mineral exploration. Right. So they'll find a dinosaur bone and then they have to call the government and be like, we found one of your bones because it's yours. Come and get it. And then... uh That can slow down the process of the mineral exploration. So there's some tension there between the government and the mining companies, which is not unusual for there to be some tension between those entities. But there are some really fantastic, amazing finds that have been made in that way and that wouldn't necessarily have been sort of uh, maintained if those rules hadn't existed. In America, if you find a dinosaur bone in your backyard, it's yours, and so you can sell it. And that has also been a problem because... uh, very historically or, or scientifically significant dinosaur bones have been found and then sold to private owners. And then those private owners can, you know, be like, you know, you can't see my dinosaur bone scientist unless you pay me a lot of money. Or, you know, you certainly can't have it unless you pay me a lot of money. So that can be an issue when we're trying to actually, like, understand the, the you know, history of our planet, so in Canada I like it, I like how they do it better but weirdly enough the the bones then can't even leave the province. So a museum in Toronto can't display dinosaur bones from Alberta, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Uh but it's also a problem for the for the museum in Toronto where they have a lot of uh dinosaur bones that they'd like to show off from the rest of Canada, but the the laws don't allow it.
0: Hank, do you know where the first dinosaur bone that was understood to be a dinosaur bone was found and the incredible story behind it.
1: I'm pretty sure I've heard this story, but it's not jumping to me. I, okay. I feel well, like it, yeah.
0: I'm just gonna distill the story to okay. its most important part, uh-huh. which is that it was a megalosaurus bone. It was known in the scientific literature as scrotum humanum because it it looks... Like a giant scrotum and in fact was widely believed to be the fossilized scrotum mm. of a giant as as giants had been described in ancient <laughs> texts.
1: <laughs> that's amazing.
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: that's real good.
0: Yeah. I, I, I look, I'm seeing it. It's the
1: end of uh it's the end of one of of a leg bone, looks like. You know it, how that there's it, sort of like the knobs on the end for it all the. It does not look like the to. end of a leg bone.
0: I mean, it looks more <laughs> like scrotum <laughs> humanum than anything else in the whole entire universe. Laura writes, "Dear John and Hank, my boss always asks me what's shaking, bacon. Oh gosh, and I don't know how to respond. Like nothing's shaking, but saying." That doesn't sound right. And saying not much doesn't feel like a grammatically appropriate reply. I want to say I'm good because ultimately I think that's what they're asking me. But I'm good definitely isn't shaken. How's your bacon shaken, Laura? (laughs) I mean,
1: I mean, the answer to what is shaken is not much. Yeah. But saying not much doesn't work because your boss obviously wants for there to be more rhymes in the workplace Right, and so you got to be like, "Not much, Hutch," or something. <laughs> and now you call your boss or, Hutch, and or, they deserve
0: it. They deserve it. Or you just say, uh, "See you later, alligator." <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm exchanging my labor for pay, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Doing my work, jerk. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's the one. Oh, oh, what's
1: shaking bacon? Yeah, I, I, yes, this is, this is the only option. It's clearly what they want. Yeah. You have to throw them a rhyme back and we've given you several options and you can pick the one you feel is most appropriate. John, this next question is from Marita who asks, Dear Hank and John, I was in a musical that took place in the 1800s and one of the characters rolled her eyes as a reaction to someone else's line. My director called her out and said people didn't roll their eyes back then. Is that true? I thought it was just a thing that we were born with, like laughing. If not, do you know the history? Mary plus Rita equals Marita. Oh, that's a great name. It is a cool name. Marita. I I looked into this with Deboki and was shocked to find that it is a new thing. Whoa. We haven't been rolling our eyes in exasperation that long, which shocked me. Are we sure? Yeah, so we rolled our eyes for a bunch of different reasons. Like like eye rolling has happened for a long time. It was a flirty thing for a while. <laughs> where it was sort of like, it was like a come hither, like, come on over,
0: <laughs> look at my eyes. I'm, I'm telling you to come this way. You see how it looks like I'm about to faint dead away? Doesn't that make you interested?
1: (laughs) It was also like an ogling thing for a while. Like Shakespeare talked about rolling eyes in terms of like lewd glares. And I don't I don't know what that would have looked like.
0: Well, but that doesn't make any sense unless the person is exceptionally tall. Yeah. I don't know. He talked about rolling you're, eyes, but like. You're literally looking away from them. What
1: what rolling eyes describes could be a bunch of different things.
0: Oh, I guess you could be like rolling them from left to right. Like, oh, hello over there and over there. Yes. Or just like around in a circle. Yeah. Like, woo, my eyes are Googling out
1: because you're so gorge. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but apparently the, the signal of exasperation wasn't around until the 1900s and didn't really catch on until like the 1980s. Really? So it's a fairly recent thing. Wow. And well, but, but I will say, I will say that your director is creating a play that is not going to be watched by people from the 1800s. It's going to be watched by people from the year 2020. Yeah. And so we should communicate using the tools that we have in our toolkit. You guys aren't going to be speaking in 1800s accents. You aren't going to be wearing no synthetic fibers. It's okay to have some anachronisms here and there. We're communicating with our current audience, and they should know that as a person
0: who is a drama professor. (laughs) This next question comes from Luke, who writes, Dear John and Hank, on a recent episode of the podcast, when discussing the possibility of the Tesla Roadster crashing back into Earth in 10 million years, Hank mentioned that the continent of Europe, or Eurasia, as I know that Hank is partial to. Hank isn't (laughs) partial to the classification of Eurasia. This is is not like an opinion of all of the (laughs) ideas that humans have made up. The fact that even Europeans (laughs) do not know where Europe ends is an indication to me That there is a problem with the classification. Anyway, because the Tesla Roadster won't come back to Earth for like 10 million years by the time it does come back to Earth, if it does crash into a continent, it will be crashing into an entirely different continent because the continents are moving around 10 million years is a long time. That got me to thinking, at what point in the future will we have to update our maps due to the continents shifting? Have we ever done this in the past? How long does it take for substantial drift to occur? I hope you're catching my continental drift, Luke. In ten million years, things are. Gonna, it turns out it's going to look pretty similar. Like it'll yeah. look.
1: It'll be different enough that we will have to change our maps. Well, we'll but have to will change some of our
0: maps because some of our current islands will yeah. uh, will not so much be. That's going to be a yeah. problem
1: first. It's far before a continental drift will will cause us to change our maps. But yeah, ten million years from now, things will look roughly the same as they are now, but we do have ways of projecting where the continents are, like what directions they're moving in. We know this. And so we can like project into the future a fair number of millions of years or tens or hundreds of millions of years, what the earth will look like. It's not exact, of course, but that's pretty cool that we can do that and sort of have an idea of what the world will look like in 60 or 100 million years.
0: If I've learned anything from the last two weeks, it's that predictions don't have to be exact for everyone to listen to them. Probably don't include that in the podcast, Tuna. You know what? Tuna, do include it and include me talking to you. We're, We're an independent podcast now. We can be meta. So do you know when we'll have to change our maps? Uh, we changed them already. Oh. You know, we, we usually think of maps as two-dimensional. two, di- two
1: dimensional, Yeah. But there are lots of places on Earth w- where we have also three-dimensional maps and where the ground changes height a lot in areas that are volcanically active. It changes height where, like, plates are smashing into each other. It also changes height where, like, erosion is happening. So we change our maps already now because of uh, the action of the inside of the earth. So all these things result in us needing to change maps, even if there was no continental drift, just by the action of wind and rain and the ocean and the rivers. So yeah, we change maps and it is a a constant gradual process. So cartographers will never be out of business.
0: Well, we'll see about that.
1: Cartographers will be in business more as the apocalypse proceeds un- until they are, <laughs> until they don't exist anymore. John, this next question is also about, about maps. It comes from David who asks, Dear Brothers Green, I was watching a Vox video on the Arctic and I couldn't help but notice how much closer Canada is to Russia than I had previously thought. Flat maps of the world obviously don't show this. So my question is... Does this mean that a direct flight from Toronto to Moscow travels directly over the Arctic Circle, or does it just travel across the Atlantic like all the other European
0: flights? Confused about maps, David. So the map we look at inevitably shapes the world we understand ourselves to live in. This is something I wrote a lot about in my book, Paper Towns. Like If you have south, be up. The world looks completely different. It's like so disorienting. It takes you a while to even realize that it's Earth. Um, And if you, for for instance, don't put Europe dead in the middle (laughs) at the top, (laughs) as if, like, all eyes on us, (laughs) then the world starts to look different, too. So they are very close together. But the question is actually a very interesting one, Hank. What happens when it makes more sense to fly over the top than it does to fly around? Well, here's the
1: shocking thing, John. Uh, to fly from Toronto to Moscow, you don't actually fly over the Pacific Ocean. You fly over the Atlantic because that's how big Russia is. Yep, Moscow is on the uh, on on the sort of European side of Russia,
0: uh, and <laughs> yes. so it is. So, mo- some would even say <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Keep yeah. going. You're almost there. Yeah, and then Siberia, <laughs> which is also in Europe, is closer to uh yeah. Canada, and then China, which again is in Europe, uh is closer <laughs> to Alaska as well. Yeah, Australia, and, but they're arguably part of Europe. Is that um, not not Europe? Okay, no, yeah. India, case that which that, I guess according to this okay. idea that this large <laughs> landmass is called Europe, um uh-huh. would also be in Europe. In which case you would also fly across the Atlantic. So sometimes you fly across <laughs> the Pacific, sometimes you fly across the Atlantic, but do you ever fly over the top is the question.
1: Yeah, so people do fly over the top and there is no reason to not fly over the top. It just turns out that there aren't a lot of things up there. Right. So if you're
0: flying, for example, what's what's one that would, would do this? If you're flying from Chicago mm-hmm. to Mumbai, India, mm-hmm. you fly... What is known as Santa's Shortcut, (laughs) also known as the Polar Route. Uh, That airspace was first opened up in 1988 and restrictions were relaxed further in 2011. So it does happen. And I'm looking at this Chicago to Mumbai flight and there's also a Chicago to Delhi flight and they both appear to go... Not, like, over the North Pole itself, but, like, pretty, yeah. pretty dang close.
1: Yeah. Also, Heathrow to Fiji. <laughs> That's so good that they, that they call it Santa's shortcut. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: Santa's shortcut. John, this next question is from Rod, who asks, <laughs> I, I want to make sure because I, I th- Rod has confused me, and now I am unsure. Okay. Dear Hank and John, yeah. when Americans say they put cream in their coffee, what do they mean? Surely it is not actual cream, which in the UK is very heavy and rich. Is it really cream? Yeah. Not fish in Rod. It's yeah. cream, right? Yeah, what, what, what else would it be? We don't put well, like a ton of it in. No, well, you just,
0: that's, that's the key, Rod. The reason cream works so well is that you need a tiny amount of it. Now, there are some people who like, put in a tremendous amount of cream into their coffee. And I, I agree with you that that gets a little rich for my tastes. And we do have all of the regular coffee drinks with milk, your cappuccinos, your lattes, your et cetera's. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, they like black coffee and then just a little bit, a little touch of cream. Yeah. And How do you drink your coffee, Hank? uh,
1: With a little sugar. I don't usually do creamer or milk, um, but like I can. I just think it makes it taste a little less like coffee and I like- The coffee flavor.
0: Well, that's that, and that's definitely like a sign of being middle aged, right. too. I think. Like, I think as you get older, you tend to like black coffee a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Rod, I recommend trying it. Just put a tiny little bit of that delicious heavy cream into your coffee and see if you like it. If you don't, no worries. You can just drink it black. But yeah, I think that is. I think that's how we do it mostly these days. To be honest with you, Rod, we do it with like uh, half soy, half almond milk, or with oat <laughs> milk. Yeah, we love our oat milk. It's really good, though. It's good. Sarah in loves oat
1: milk. Yeah. This next question comes from Audrey, who asks, Dear Hank and John, except for me, because I only drink decaf. Uh, I'm very <laughs> excited for John's new book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Thank and you. I know that all the books uh, in the first printing will be signed, but I usually get books from my local bookstore when new books come out. Will copies be signed if I get it right when it comes out, even if I get it from my local bookstore, like The Maiden, not The Plant, audrey yes oh audrey the plant from little shop of horrors
0: little shop of horrors joke that's good (laughs) yes audrey so the whole strategy behind signing the entire first printing of the book instead of trying to somehow only sign certain pre-orders is that every single copy that initially goes into every single bookstore will be signed at least in the u.s and probably canada so your local bookstore will, will if they have the Anthropocene Reviewed book, which I hope they will, will have signed copies. In fact, they won't have unsigned copies, at least at first, because the idea is that is to sign enough to make sure that every copy that goes into every bookstore is autographed. So you should feel free to wait. And uh, or you can pre-order it from your local independent bookstore as well, because it doesn't come out for a long time, like it doesn't come out until May. Some bookstores aren't taking pre-orders yet, but uh, yeah, you'll be able to buy it when when it does come out. And the world will look, I don't know what it will look like in May, different, probably. but I'm really excited for the Anthropocene reviewed book. It's weird and a little nervous-making to be publishing a book of nonfiction. I don't feel like as qualified to do it for some reason, but I have loved writing The Anthropocene Reviewed, and, and I hope that people respond well to the book, which reminds me actually that today's podcast is brought to you by The Anthropocene Reviewed Book, coming to bookstores everywhere May 18th, 2021. If you live in the U.S. and Canada, you're going to have a darn hard time finding an unsigned copy of it.
1: <laughs> this podcast is also brought to you by M&Cs. They're just peanut M&Ms with a little bit of vitamin C sprayed on them, so you don't have to eat
0: 140,000 calories to not get scurvy. And today's podcast is also brought to you by Scrotum Humanum. Scrotum <laughs> Humanum. It was actually dinosaur Legum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here all week.
1: And also this podcast is brought to you by Santa's Shortcut. Santa's <laughs> Shortcut. He threw to Fiji in just 18 hours. <laughs> Some shortcut, Santa.
0: All right, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we need to talk about acorns. We've gotten almost as many emails about acorns as acorns have fallen in Indiana this fall, (laughs) which is really saying something, because as I have learned from your many emails... This is a masting year for our local oak trees. So Laura explained this quite succinctly, writing, Dear John and Hank, I'm sure a bunch of people have already written in about this. Thank you for acknowledging that, Laura. You're correct. But I'm going to do it anyway, because plants are amazing. I'm guessing the reason you have so many acorns this year is that it's a masting year. Every few years, all the oak trees in an area coordinate with one another to produce a ridiculous amount of acorns, way more than the squirrels are able to eat, so that the trees will have a better chance of reproducing. Then the next couple years, the trees will go back to normal production, and the squirrels will get most of the nuts. This also means that the squirrels have a really good year during masting, and then populations go down until the next masting. Masting year, mm. And this is one of the things about masting that kind of blew my mind when I read more about it, Hank, which is that, A, we don't really know what's causing this exactly. Mm-hmm. B, it seems like large groups of oak trees are able to communicate and coordinate because there's no other explanation for hmm. the varying distance between masting years. Weird. And C... Uh, They seem to do this, maybe, possibly, at least in part, to control the population of mammals that eat lots of acorns. So they're like, we can't, we can't
1: have the same amount of acorns every year because then they'll all get eaten. So we have to have some big years and some right. little years so that they can't eat all of them in the big years and then the population goes down in the little years.
0: Right, but it would be easier to understand if everybody, if the trees were like, yeah, so every three years we lay down a lot of acorns and then we go two years, but they don't, they don't do that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's much weirder and potentially more mind-blowing than that. So that is why there are a gajillion acorns in Indianapolis right now. And it is also it also means that the oak trees are talking to each other, uh, which Sarah reminded me is basically the plot of her favorite novel of this year, Richard Power's book, The Overstory. So I'll be reading that next and I will report back. <laughs> trees are amazing. They are evidence that The rule of life is not, as we were told as children, that only the strong survive and you must only compete to survive. They are evidence of the fact that collaboration and cooperation is also essential to any form of life surviving
1: cool and the but the side effect is that you have to definitely wear shoes outside all the time
0: Oh yeah no it's you can't even you can't even walk five feet without stepping on two or three acorns what's the news from Mars this week Hank well
1: in Mars news scientists uh, have been studying some asteroids near Mars and they found one. That seems to resemble the moon. Oh. So the asteroids they're studying are called the Trojan asteroids. Uh, they follow the same path a planet does in its orbit around the sun, uh, but then they sort of like are a set distance behind or in front of the planet. So there's these sort of like gravitationally stable points that they can chill out in. So they sort of orbit the... Sun or a- along with the planet. We know that planets like Jupiter have thousands of these asteroids because it's very big, and so those pockets are really big and can collect a lot of asteroids in them. But we didn't know about as many of these around terrestrial planets. If Earth has Trojan asteroids, we still have had a hard time spotting them because Their location is uh, close to the sun, and it's difficult to look at them with a telescope. But Mars uh, seems to have Trojan asteroids. Uh, We definitely have found them. So a team of astronomers used a tool called the X-Shooter from the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile to study a set of Trojan asteroids and see what they are made of. And they studied how sunlight bounced off of them to figure out what they're composed of and found one of the asteroids was different from the other ones, and it was... Uh, so this was unique among this set of asteroids, and it looked quite a bit like the moon. Why it looks like the moon is unknown. There are a couple of guesses. It might be a piece of the moon, which does happen. Obviously, the moon was hit, has been hit by a lot of uh, impactors, and so that throws little bits off. Um, it could just be a normal asteroid that just looks like the moon uh, and ended up that way through a process of solar radiation radiation. Uh, and space space weathering that created like a moon-like patina on the
0: outside of the asteroid. Sort of like how all river rocks end up like sort of river rocky if you give them enough time. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: and then there's also a chance that it's actually a piece of Mars's crust that ended up in orbit somehow and uh, ended up looking a bit like the moon. So we're not sure, but there is a weird asteroid around Mars That we have discovered, and we only know it's weird because it isn't like the rest of them that we studied, but it it may actually be a piece of the moon over there.
0: That's kind of lovely. Yeah. I like the the idea of sharing our moon with Mars a little bit. It's got a little bit of moon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the news from AFC Wimbledon is uh, in equal parts great and terrible. AFC Wimbledon played their first game... Back at Plow Lane, it was an extremely emotional day. There was a wonderful live stream for an hour before kickoff where Wimbledon fans, former Wimbledon players, all uh, were able to share together in the magic of that moment, even though we couldn't be there together in real life. And then Wimbledon took the field against a very good Doncaster Roverside and uh, went into the lead. And we all know that in this fragile, fragile world, nothing is more fragile than Wimbledon with a 1-0 lead. And so (sighs) sure enough, uh, Doncaster equalized almost immediately. We then went into a 2-1 lead. And I thought to myself... Are these less fresh? No, no. Doncaster equalized almost immediately. <laughs> so the game ended 2-2. Two, two. Well, that's not terrible.
1: It's not I mean, terrible. If you get, if you get two, draws two. all season, you'll be
0: great. Well, Just keep getting draws. Yeah. At this point, I would be fine with drawing the rest of our games. I mean, it wouldn't be that fun, but it would be a heck of a story. <laughs> so that was great. And it was just, I mean, it was just magical to see Plow Lane and to see... The players there, the pitch looks amazing, the stands look great, and to know that we built that place and we built it, you know, taking out loans from ourselves, basically. I mean, the fa- the, the stadium was built primarily via a bond that the fans raised themselves and mm-hmm. the club will pay us back and... It's just a wonderful day. And I felt so, so grateful to everybody who worked so hard for almost 30 years to make that moment possible and who never gave up on their dream. It's such a testament, I think, to what can happen when a community holds on to hope and sticks together. And then three days later, uh, AFC Wimbledon released a statement saying that, quote, some Players and staff have tested positive mm. for COVID nineteen. Mm. Some is a is a very uh, yeah. It's a big adjective in that in that sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still really hopeful that we can play the rest of the season, and it would be really heartbreaking if we couldn't. But obviously, the safety of the community has to come first, and so we'll see.
1: Obviously. Well,
0: that that is awful. And I don't know. I obviously don't know what it what it
1: means. I'm sure that it's me neither. The kind of thing that will continue to happen. Yeah. But uh, I also know that we'll get through this.
0: We will. And it is really encouraging to see a good response from a vaccine candidate, Mm -hmm. at least from initial results it's really really encouraging yeah we'll get through this regardless this will end pandemics end they always end many of them have ended before but if we can speed the rate at which we get through this that would be wonderful yeah well hank thank you for potting with me and thanks to everybody for listening we really appreciate you sending in your questions to hank and john at gmail.com and we're just so glad that you're here with us yeah Thank you.
1: This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Davoki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarolla. And as they say in our hometown, don't,
0: don't forget, forget to be awesome. Be awesome.